You're listening to The Weekend Take, and now your host, Sean Schaefer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Weekend Take. I'm your host, Sean Schaefer, and joining me this week is producer and director, Norman Burns. Norman, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Pleased to be here today. Norman, thanks again for for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Get to know you a little bit better and your journey to this point, so I guess we'll start with the easiest of questions. Tell us who you are and a bit about what you do. Uh, I, well, I produce, I direct, been doing it for quite a while. The most exciting part of that statement is that I've just almost wrapped a documentary in Albany that I'm incredibly proud of. Uh, we're editing it now. Susan Peel is my editor. She's a, a Academy Award nominated editor who did A Good Day in Harlem. She's terrific. We spent about a year shooting trying to discover the story of a man who just didn't want to be a public figure. He did everything. He was everywhere, but he always took the back seat. And it has been difficult ferreting out the information about Louis Swire, who's the man we're talking about. Incredible man. It's very hard to make a film about uh, an extraordinarily talented man with a good heart, a kind nature, who does well. From day one, from the time he was a kid, literally, he wanted to help people. I have no idea why. That's a, a question way beyond my ability to answer. But he wanted to take care of things. And as he went through his life, once he got out of the Navy, came back from World War II, that was his whole goal. He was a builder, construction. That was his day job. But even then, starting out, he'd just come back from the war. Times were hard. Jobs were hard to get. He wanted to make affordable housing rather than high-profit housing. So he spent all of his time in that first few years making low-income housing. Even his partner on this, the man who was his general manager, so there was no profit in these, meaning everybody made a living, but there were no big numbers. But that's what he cared about. It worked. It worked for him. So anyway, we spent uh, about a year making this film. We'll spend another mm, four or five months in the edit room before we're done. Uh, and I hope to see it out uh, towards the end of, de- of this year. Before we get into some more of the details on the documentary, which right now the, the title currently is A Place to Dance, correct? It was named A Place to Dance because, oddly enough, this construction guy, this builder of houses, Love theater, an equity actor. He had hoped to be an actor, found out you can't make a living that way. But he never lost his love of theater and an incredible attachment to dance. I have no idea why. He created the first National Museum of Dance. It's the only one in the country. It's up in Saratoga Springs, and it is truly, truly worth a visit. Whether you like dance or not, it's just a gorgeous museum, beautifully created. Neighboring the National Museum of Dance in Saratoga, another one of Lou's uh, brainchilds, which if you don't like dance, but let's say you like music or many other forms of media and entertainment, he helped create SPAC, the Saratoga Performing Arts Center, uh, initially with the intention to lure the New York Ballet to do a residency, correct? That is correct, and he was successful. This theater was a, a massive undertaking, and The thing about this man, he's never did things halfway. Things that he created, he really required that they be, I hate to use the word perfect, but we'll say well above the average. And that's what he created up in Saratoga. Uh, If you haven't been to that theater, anyone who's out there, go. It's an amazing experience. 
Sightlines are terrific, and the talent that's on that stage is just amazing. For people who live in upstate New York or New York in general and really have uh, Lewis Swire to thank for making it such a, an art-centric portion of the Northeast. It is amazing. I have heard it's the best facility like this in the country. What was the, the spark or the moment that made you want to get involved in the, in the film industry? Oh, heavens. This goes back a long time. I was in theater and I was putting on shows and doing little stuff, doing uh, dinner theater at that point. And one of my friends said, hey, we're making a film. You want to work on it? And I said, no. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. He said, no, no, it's OK. We're all friends. We're just going to go shoot. I wasn't doing anything that week, so I went, and uh, I was almost instantly hooked. Not only the, the camaraderie of the crew, the sense that we are a unit, but the ability to create something that has permanence. That's an amazing experience. And when I did theater, I'd always worry about how can I get people to look at this place? What do I have to do to make them change their focus. Well, in film, I just have to rack focus. That's really easy. <laughs> I stayed with it. I kept directing a little bit of theater for a few years, but uh, I was pretty much hooked on film and never went, never went out of it. I guess tell us a little bit about the journey that gets us from, hey, we're weekend warrior uh, filmmakers, come help us. Then that moment hooks you to, well, now you've had this massive undertaking of producing a feature-length documentary like A Place to Dance. So obviously there's some stops in between. Metropolitan Opera. What an incredible gig that was. My film partner, uh, Gene Serchiger, we had an opportunity to work with the Metropolitan Opera. When they were doing their live broadcast, they had an intermission because between acts and they have to fill that space. It's about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. We were hired to make a little feature to fit into that 20-minute whole. I don't know that I've ever had more fun in my life hanging out with the, the lights of, of Pavarotti and Placido Domingo and incredible talent who turn out to be ordinary people like you and me. It was wonderful. They were so giving. They opened their brains. They opened their hearts. They talked about the nature of making art it was beautiful. But I, I have to tell you, I'm the guy who sent Placido Domingo out to get coffee. <laughs> I did. I did. I was not a big opera fan. I had no idea who he was. I was in his apartment waiting to film. So I'm sitting there. I was told nobody's there. Just tell the doorman to let you in. So I'm waiting. And this guy comes in and says, hi, how are you? I said, fine. He says, do you need anything? I said, oh, we're all dying for coffee. He said, I'll take care of that. What do you? How do you take it? <laughs> I gave him a couple of bucks. He said, no, no, I'll pick this up. I went downstairs, came back with the coffee. I didn't learn who he was until, you know, a half hour later until the director came back in on that project and we all got introduced. Oh, I was so embarrassed. Oh, no. But <laughs> it worked out well. He thought it was hysterical. He really did. And that's the kind of experience it was. We became part of the company in a sense sort of highly peripheral. I neither sing nor dance, but I learned more about the creation of art uh, than I had in my whole life. When you hang out with somebody like uh, James Levine, Placido Domingo, you pick up tips on how to create art that 
you just don't find in a book. You don't find even in your co-workers unless you have the very good fortune of working with the very best in a field. Anyway, we did it for three years. Three years. We made, a, oh, I don't know, about nine films, I think. And I came out of it loving opera. Who knew? Hmm. I guess what was the next big stop for you? Some of your previous credits, including uh, working with uh, Mr. Scorsese on, a, on something. It was absolutely marvelous. What a genius. But that was a job. You come in in the morning, you do your work, you go home at the end of the day. It was a tough job. It was a good job. I wasn't on for the whole shoot. I was on for a little piece of it. A job of which I'm proud. I'll give you a better one that has no credit on it. I was, I was a young punk kid looking for work in Manhattan. I was now a filmmaker, which meant I was totally unemployed. (laughs) Boy, I hate to admit it. This goes back to 1971. Would you believe? In any case, I got an opportunity to work on a film called The Hospital. The Hospital starred George C. Scott through some really, really good fortune and uh, some oddities. I got to hang out with the director. Uh, Arthur Hiller was the director. He eventually went on to win a whole lot of awards, uh, ran the Directors Guild eventually. My job on this film, I had no job in this film. My job was to observe. What, what an astonishing thing. So I was given carte blanche. I could go into anybody's room. I could attend every meeting, but I had to be quiet. I was not allowed to speak. That was frustrating, but it was really wonderful to watch people like Hiller, like the actors on this film, try to build a sequence that worked. We're talking about people like George C. Scott, Diana Rigg, Barney Hughes, who was just an amazing actor. And it was written by Patty Chievsky, who's one of my favorite writers. Incredible talent. So what do I learn? I'm hanging out between takes. I'm sitting next to, oh my God, I'm sitting next to Patty Chievsky. I cannot believe this. He pulls out his pipe. I pull out my pipe. We all did that back then. And we discovered they were exactly the same. We went to the same pipe shop in Manhattan. So now we're the best of buddies because we have the same pipes. And that continued. The show went on for about eight weeks. We were buddies. George Scott, what a giant of an actor, knocks on my dressing room door. I was also acting in it. I had a little teeny tiny part. George Scott knocks on the dressing room door and says, I understand we're doing your scene today. I'm having trouble with the lines. Would you run them with me? Oh, wow. Now, George Scott did not have trouble with the lines, for God's sakes. He was that gentle, that kind, that realizing that I was the kid and he was going to help me. And he did. He was generous. Diana Rigg was uh, George Scott's uh, partner in the, in the film. I was madly in love with her, madly in love with her. And she was such a sweetheart. I followed her around like a little puppy. Uh, oh, well, that was a long time ago. That film sticks in my head as... What an opportunity. How astonishingly lucky I was to be part of something like that. And when people ask me, you know, how do I get into film? Get into film. Do it. You may or may not work on something this large. And I had no idea it was that large when I started. There are all sorts of films. You don't always have to have a job to be part of a film set. You really can hang out. You can be the lowest of the PAs on a film set. But if you're watching, if you're standing next to the director, if they take pity on you, 
you will learn a great deal. And I, it's, I tell all my students that. When I'm on a set, I can tell which are the people who will succeed. And I've, I've been pretty accurate on it. They'll be the PAs who don't want to leave that set, who are so glued to it. And they're the kids I will find on the next film and the next film and the next film. And then eventually they're in the Directors Guild, they're in the unions, and they're making their own films. What was the beginning of you producing and directing? I got extraordinarily lucky again. And I do think that a lot of success is a matter of being in the right place at the right time. I had written a script. It was a horror film, actually. And I was very hot. I was going to get this produced. And some guy called me and said, I want to make this film. Can we meet? He never put together the money to make this film. The film never got produced. But turned out he and I liked each other a lot. He was a documentary filmmaker. Name was Gene Searchinger. And he said, well, you know, I got a little shoot coming up. You want to work with me? It was a job. For God's sakes, he was going to pay me. I worked. We then went on. We worked for the next 25 years together. It was a unique learning experience. Gene felt that films were made in the editing room. You had to get the raw materials but then you make them in the editing room. And when people would say, but don't you have a script? He would say, would you, would you send her, ask a reporter to write the, the story before he goes out to cover the fire? And he said, well, of course not. He said, well, don't ask me to write a script for a movie I haven't made yet. Wow. When we were working for organizations like National Endowment for the Humanities, National uh, Education Association, they would demand a script. And so Gene and I would always write our script. Uh, we get funded, and then we tear it up and throw it away. <laughs> they never asked to see it again. It was purely documentaries. When you make a documentary like that, they're a process of discovery. You're trying to learn what the subject is, and you know who you're going to talk to. You have a list of seven people you're going to talk to. But the first person says, I'm not really the guy. You really want to talk to that gal over there. Oh, okay, well, so now you've shifted over there. And somebody says, no, no, it didn't happen in Utah. It happened in California. You've got to get out there. So all of a sudden, all of your plans for this film are different from what you had researched. If you're a really smart filmmaker, you follow those leads. You don't stick to your plan. And if you want to see documentaries that you really hate, watch a film that has rigidly followed its original plan. They lack heart. They lack movement. The first big project we, we made together was a, a film called The Human Language. We made it for PBS. It was a three-part series on why we speak. How do we learn to speak? Do you know that little babies, as they're learning to speak, actually know grammar? How is that possible? But they do. You watch the film, you'll see it. That film took us six years to film and about three years to edit. Oh, wow. Now, things happened simultaneously. We would shoot, we would edit, we would shoot, we would edit. The film won enormous awards. They're, they're Gene's awards. They are not mine. I was a player on that, not the creator. But I learned that unlike a, a feature film where you're, you're painting between the lines on a feature film, you have a script and you follow it. Documentary should be about learning your subject as you go. And how do you put it together? Well, you put it together 10,000 ways. You raise your right hand while you're talking. And look, she's raising her right hand. Can I cut those two pieces together? Oh, I can. And all of a sudden you make associations, you make relationships that didn't really exist, but they exist on film. 
So you build your documentary out of the material that you've collected. If you're good at what you've done, you've collected good stuff. If you're not, you don't. The Human Language was our, our first film, the first really big film. We did a lot of little documentaries. As I said, a lot of years. We followed that up with a film, a series called The Writing Code. And that was my baby. At that point, I had uh, spent a lot of years with Gene. I was now producing and directing. And The Writing Code was about writing. How writing is an invention. It's not something we're born with. We don't know how to write. We do know how to speak. We do know how to talk to each other without any lesson at all. But writing is something else. That's a craft. And somebody had to sit down and actually invent writing. And it is really, really hard. There were a few people who did it within our lifetimes or not very far from our lifetimes. And it took them many, many years to accomplish this. And it's happened maybe 100 times in the whole world, maybe 500 times, but it's rare. So we went back, we discovered the creation, the moment that writing was created, uh, invented. We found that moment. I talked to the scientist who held pre-writing in her hand and told me how that became writing. An amazing experience. Circling back to A Place to Dance, which is now your latest work. This film means a lot to me. What has been, uh, I guess, the most surprising thing that you've learned either about the process of making a documentary film or about the subject in this case being Lewis Swire over the course of creating this film? I ask everybody, what was wrong with this man? And they'd think for a moment and say nothing. I talked to people when he was uh, working as a builder who he bid against. He, he cut a lot of people out of work. They loved him. They said they'd bid against him any day of the week. He's a wonderful man. It was an, an honor to, to lose to Lewis Swire. Really? Really? <laughs> The arc in this film is a little strange. It's unlike most other films. Lou Swire was on, I'm going to guess, I'll pull a number out of the air, 40 boards, board of directors, of which he was president of about 25 of them simultaneously. Lou was known for never taking a seat and sitting there silently. If you had Lou Swire attend a board meeting, he was in charge. He may not have started that way, but he ended up that way. He ran, controlled, helped shape every one of these boards he was on. And they were big boards. It was major hospitals. It's the man who created the New York State Council on the Arts. This is a man who built theaters. He never took any accolades for it. He just would step back. So this is a guy who's running on 20 boards, 25 boards. He's creating theaters. He's supporting actors as he made money. He just apparently made more than he wanted to have, so he gave a great deal of it away to arts organizations. He had time for his family. I got all these pictures of him with the kids, and he's playing, and they're laughing, and he's jumping. And I asked, he had three children, and I asked each of them quietly, privately, on camera, if they ever lacked for anything, if they missed him. And they really would think hard and say, no, he was always home. Well, he wasn't always home, but he always came home, meaning he'd come home for dinner most times, have dinner with the family, he'd play with the kids, he'd read them stories, and then he'd go out and do his work. And then he'd do the things he cared about. He cared about art, he cared about minority support. Just starting out, 
he created a program for minorities in the construction industry that's now used as a national standard. Why did he do that? He wasn't a minority. Why did he care so much? But he did. I don't think there are many people in the whole world like Lou Swire. I think he was a rare human being. And I sometimes I would go to the set, Sean, absolutely amazed that I was lucky enough to be part of discovering who this man was. And I mean that with great sincerity. Wow, what an incredible thing to be able to hang out with someone of that stature, of that quality. And so I guess my follow-up to that is over the course of production of this film, was there anything that you learned about yourself as a filmmaker? I learned that I always have to be inquisitive. I think we all get a little lazy about that. Certainly as the years go on and you've done one show and then another show, you sometimes lean back in the seat. And I've learned you really cannot do that. You can't make a film relaxing in the chair. You have got to be inquisitive and probing and introspective because the questions are going to come from you. Beyond a, a place to dance, is there anything else on the horizon in 2020 for you or or is a place to dance really kind of all encompassing of, of 2020? Uh, I've had a fault all my life, Sean. I, I get wrapped up in the project I'm doing and I forget that I'll ever have to work again. So no, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I've got some scripts that have come in that people want me to look at. I've talked to some people who may want to film. But right now, this is my focus. If I'm not in the process of filming, I'm reading, I'm researching, I'm learning. Unfortunately, you know, as soon as this is over, I'm unemployed again for the 800th time in my life. (laughs) Such is the life of working in film, so. It is, Sean, but before I I can hear you trying to wind this up, there's two things I want to say. You deserve enormous accolades for the work you brought to this film, and you will see them on screen, and I think you'll be enormously pleased with what you've done. Documentaries, if you think of Michael Moore, if you think of the the films I've made from Gene Searchinger, they're, they're a bit down and dirty. They're rough. You put up a light, you shoot. Hurry up, hurry up. You're constantly going and it's good enough. You'll be fine. You have given me a film that looks gorgeous. My God, it's wonderful. So every time I show somebody a piece of it, they go, wow, that looks nice. That's you, Sean. So I thank you for that. In turn, I have to thank all the, the members of the, the crew that put in the work to to get us to that point. And, and obviously thank you and the rest of the production team. And I guess in a strange way, I have Lou to thank also, since he built a lot of the places that we shot in. Isn't that amazing? Norman, if people, if listeners want to learn more about the film or uh, learn more about you and your work, uh, how can they do all of those things? Uh, I'm on Facebook. Come find me. It's my page is just my name. I've been posting pictures from production uh, since we started. Marvelous photographer, still photographer on this. Matt Earl has delivered some really exciting shots of the production. We're in the process of building a website. We're in the process of getting our Wikipedia page up. The focus for the last year has been on making this film. There will be a website up soon. Norman, again, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time to to chat with us. Thanks. It's been fun. I appreciate your asking me to do it. And 
It's been good. And uh, listeners can, of course, follow The Weekend Take on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com backslash The Weekend Take. We're on Twitter at Weekend Take. And be sure to check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com backslash The Weekend Take, where for as little as $1 per month, you can become a patron of The Weekend Take and get exclusive access to extended cuts of episodes. You also get early access to episodes and starting this season, Patreon patron exclusive episodes. There's an upcoming massive mini series of episodes that I've dubbed The Rise and Fall of Skywalker, where we're going to look at the prequel trilogy, the original trilogy, the sequel trilogy, and then, of course, the spinoffs and series and look at the future of the Star Wars franchise. That'll all be exclusive to Patreon patrons. Uh, again, that's patreon.com backslash the weekend take. Otherwise, again, thank you, Norman, for coming on the show and for. Listeners, I hope you have a great week ahead, and I will catch you all next week. Take care. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Weekend Take. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Visit our Patreon page to become a patron of The Weekend Take, and for as little as $1, you'll receive exclusive content and perks.